Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Pest Management in a No-Till Cover Crop System, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments, for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about bugs in your no-till system and explore some ideas about how managing them changes when you add cover crops into the equation. Douglas Jones is an entomologist for Bayer Crop Science working in Nebraska where he does field research and trials on 60 acres of cropland. He's also affiliated with the University of Nebraska and grows timber in southern Arkansas. I caught up with Doug by phone to ask him about managing insects, both pests and beneficials, in a no-till cover crop operation, as well as to get his thoughts on stacked traits, the controversy surrounding neonics and pyrethroids, and more. My name's uh, Douglas Jones. I'm a uh, entomologist and uh, a technology development rep with Bear Crop Science. I did my uh, PhD work at Oklahoma State University, did a stint in extension with the University of Illinois, and now I'm out in Nebraska. So, Doug, there's been a big emphasis on integrating cover crops into no-till systems because organic matter, uh, living roots in the ground help erosion, all of that. But what about the insect side of the equation? Um, how is that impacted by adding cover crops into the rotation? When you talk about the insect side of things with cover crops, well, that's a difficult question because uh, you got to look at what the crop is, where you are in the world or in the United States as to what pest complexes may be impacted. It's one of those things that uh, there are some cover crops can actually exacerbate or, or intensify the pest pressure on the following crop. And then there are other situations where you can, uh, you're actually conserving and promoting the uh, production of beneficial insects, and so you can actually reduce the populations of insects that cause problems on, in the following crop. It's kind of a difficult uh, one. There's no one-size-fits-all, as I, I guess is the way I should say it. Uh, there's some uh, basic tenets that one should always do, and, and I'm going to go right back to one that uh, we as entomologists have preached for years is, you can't tell what's going on out in your field in the coffee shop. You have to actually go out and look and scout and see what's there. And from that, then you can make informed decisions on how to address any issues that you might have. Do you have any advice for decreasing the pests and or increasing beneficials? When you start looking at uh, pest populations, some basic tenets to follow is rotation, Rotation is always good. So if you plant the same crop year after year after year, then you can very easily build up pest populations to very damaging levels to where they're causing problems early in the crop cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing can be held true with uh, what you use to do your uh, cover crop with. So if you use a broadleaf like a turnip or whatever as a cover crop one year, 
and then you're going right back into another broadleaf crop like a soybean the following season, that may actually cause more problems than if you were to, say, use a cereal rye or, or something else as your cover crop and then go to a uh, soybean. And now you've got, you're going from one very different type of crop to another, and so your pest complex usually is not quite the same. And so maybe you do have a few insect pests there, but they're not able to take advantage of the, the following crop. The, the worst thing that we found that you can do is to do the same thing over and over. Yeah. It's actually better to mix things up, keep everybody off, off kilter. If uh, the insects know they're going to get corn every year, well, they don't have to work very hard to uh, attack your corn. But, you know, if you take corn and then you mix in some beans and uh, then maybe even far western uh, states, they mix in a fallow year where they don't grow anything. That's more for water management, but it, it's still those type of things. You mix it up so that they don't ever really know what's coming. And then that way the pests really never develop a uh, a good stronghold or a good stanchion to uh, uh, come in and make the problems for your uh, for the growing season. Some of the other things to think about, and there's different schools of thought here. So uh, there's the problem of uh, green bridging. So it's a, it, that's a case of where you grow a cover crop, you encourage the development, or you actually have a very uh, robust microbiome of pests, their predators and parasitoids and all that going on in the cover crop. Then you plant your crop right in there, and then they just jump over. So sometimes you do well if you go ahead and actually uh, kill your cover crop at least a couple of weeks before you expect your crop to come up or you plant so that it goes crispy and, and the insects that are present at that point, especially the pest insects, they starve out. And then when your crop comes up, it's basically starting new, except that usually some of the predators and the parasitoids, they're still around because they their life cycle is slightly off from the uh, pest life cycles, uh, meaning that uh, pests build up early, the predator and the parasitoid populations, they follow suit, but they're usually a week or two behind as uh, on their emergence. And so uh, a lot of times you can get them to come out just as your uh, your crop's coming out, and they're actually a good thing to have there. I see. So the parasitoid ones, those you're, you're saying those are the beneficials. That's one of the beneficials. So a, a parasitoid, by definition, is an insect or, or an organism. It's like a parasite, except that it kills the host that it feeds on. And it only kills, uh, it's basically a one-to-one -one type of arrangement, usually. Now, there are some uh, parasitoids that uh, will have many parasitoids come out of one host. But it's still, they end up killing the host to complete their life cycle. So what about using mechanical implements like row cleaners? Does that do anything to help with pest management? Well, when you start talking about slugs, there is some evidence that it can help. The biggest reason is, and, and we see this really big time here in Nebraska, is that when we do a little bit of strip tillage or something right there at the row to clean off the debris away from the seed bed, you, the soil warms up quicker, the seed grows a little quicker, gets up out of the soil faster, and, and gets started on its season of growth sooner. And one of the big things when you talk about slugs, the best way to uh, avoid damage with them is to get big before the slugs come out and start feeding on you. In that case, if uh, anything you can do to encourage the crop to grow faster, which row cleaners can do that. Now, other insects, it's going to be highly variable. 
and I said slugs, uh, slugs aren't insects, but uh, still it's the same idea with the pest. If it's a soil-dwelling insect, road cleaner may help. If it's something that is a visitor, so to speak, or something that uh, like comes in from outside like a corn earworm, uh, road cleaners are not likely to going to help you at all. Well, and speaking of slugs, they're a huge problem in no-till. Anything else that no-tillers should be thinking about in terms of controlling them? Well, uh, no, I personally have not worked with slugs, but uh, I took time to do a little reading on them. And uh, one of the things that everybody recommends there is to get the crop out of the ground before the slugs hatch. Because every year you have the eggs, they start hatching. Uh, depending on where you are, the timing's a little different. But, for example, late May, slug eggs are hatching and then uh, are small for a little while. And then they get to a, a, a juvenile stage that they really eat and they do a lot of damage at that point. So if you got a lot of seedling plants when they're in that really hungry stage, you're going to see a lot of damage. If you've got a larger plant that can sustain a little bit of damage, yeah, you'll you'll have feeding still, but it's not going to be the devastation type of feeding that you would get if your seedlings came out of the ground at the same time the uh, slugs are eating. I've seen that as a case for having some cover crops growing in the spring because then the slugs might go for the cover crops instead of the seedlings that are emerging. That's another idea. Uh, as long as you don't have those ridiculous populations, and you can get those, in those cases, they'll eat all the cover crops and they'll eat the crop too. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> but but those those are kind of rare. Those, those don't happen real often. But I, I have seen it in uh, certain situations. Uh, so in those cases, once again, scouting becomes really important. you got to know what's there. You can actually do tests in the fall to see what your egg load for slugs are. And if it's really high, yeah, you probably want to make sure that you get the crop in the ground soon and then also be ready to use a molluscicide. So, you know, one of the big things on it here is I don't encourage anybody to spray insecticides or any pesticide indiscriminately, but uh, I do not shy away from using one when it, its use is warranted. So when you were talking about scouting for slug eggs, what can you tell me about the relationship between the presence of insects in a field and soil health? Hmm. You're asking me these questions that uh, there's there's a thousand and one answers. Sure. Uh, the, the simple fact is, is that uh, the more healthy your soil is, the more biodiversity you're going to see in it. And uh, so lots of insects, lots of other arthropods, lots of annelids, worms, and that sort in the soil that's usually a very good thing because especially if you're working no-till, you know, you're not going to be dragging a, a plow through there or a disc and you're not going to be turning the soil over. So you have to have something that does do some aeration in the soil. And that's where the insects and the other uh, uh, soil-dwelling critters, that's where they come in. So it, it's it's actually a good thing to, to encourage conservation of these insects. When you look at the overall pest complex, there's actually not very many. It's less than 1% of all the insect species in the world, and it's actually far less than 1%. When you go up for every insect that you can name, there's something that feeds on it. And then when you take that, you can look, go up a little further, and there's something that feeds on the one that feeds on the one that's feeding on your crop. Right. So it's, uh, it gets really complicated. So the, uh, I did my Ph.D. on parasitoids of uh, aphids in that there's also what we call hyperparasitoids of the parasitoids. And then there's also hyperparasitoids of the hyperparasitoids. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. 
We'll get back to Doug in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at getterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Doug Jones as he talks more about evaluating the impact of insects on your crops. When farmers are out there looking at their fields, how would they go about evaluating what level of insect impact is okay? What's the tipping point at which impact really starts to affect yields? Okay, now this is where I'm going to really bring in the value of your extension agent and also the various uh, people that are local because they're going to have the actual economic thresholds that you'll need to work with. Okay. So uh, when we look at, let's just take uh, a, for example, um, corn rootworm. It's, uh, it's a fairly one that's fairly well developed. We know that if you look out into the field and you're going to grow corn, if you don't have traits for control of those rootworm, then if you have more than, uh, oh, if I remember right now, it's not very many eggs actually in the soil. Or what's easier is to actually float the larvae out on the roots after uh, the larvae have emerged in uh, early June, usually. And uh, you can determine what kind of pressure you're going to see on the plant. So if you've got more than about two to three larvae per root, you're probably looking at some significant injury on your plant. Okay. Now, that, that is uh, predicated on whether or not you're growing traits. If you have traits in the plant, uh, such as a SmartStacks Pro, for example, that has two modes of rootworm control in it, then in that case, you can tolerate a few more larvae on the root. If you have no traits for it and you have put down no insecticides and you've got a couple, uh, if I remember right, the, lo- the, the threshold is between three and five. If you have that many on there, they are going to eat a lot of roots. I've actually floated larvae out of a corn plant before where I floated over 200. And, uh, yeah, we followed that crop, and uh, a little bit, like about a week and a half later, there were no roots left under the corn at all. It was just a stick in the ground. Oh, wow. So when you say float them, are you saying you you pull the plant out and you dip it in a a big tub of water or something? Yep. Uh, You take a five-gallon bucket of water. Uh, It doesn't even have to be full, but... We'll dig a uh, the root ball out with a shovel, drop it in the water, and then slosh it around, and then you watch for the larvae to float to the top. I see. It's a quick and easy way to scout. And with every insect, there's a different mechanism that you need to use to scout. Some are very easy. Some are uh, more difficult. Uh, when you look at, uh, let's talk about, say, soybean cyst nematodes, you're going to have to actually take soil samples, send them into a lab, and then they'll test for the uh, soybean cyst egg load in the oh. soil. They're really, really small, and they'll take them into the lab, and they'll sort them out in the lab, and uh, they'll give you a count per cc of soil. And uh, there can be huge numbers out there, and uh, you, you need to know what's there. I've seen some studies that suggest using neonic seed treatments in soybeans is not effective, largely because the insecticide is only effective for a limited amount of time, and it's ineffective by the time certain pests actually attack. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, when we talk about any insecticide, especially like a seed treatment, thing you got to remember is that a seed treatment is at its highest titer in the plant just as the plant comes up. And that's because you treat it with a certain amount of insecticide on the seed, and then you never add any more, but the plant continues to get bigger. So as the plant gets bigger, your effects or your effective dose in the plant gets smaller and smaller. And at some point, it finally gets to the point where it has no effect anymore because you don't have enough of it present for uh, anything that feeds on it for it to actually to do the job that it was put there for. And this is going to be highly variable as well. If you're in a situation where there's lots of pest pressure and uh, you've, uh, uh, you know it's going to be hitting the crop soon, and I'm thinking right now of something like you know that you get uh, aphids feeding on the plant every year really early. It's just you just know your field. They're, they're, they're going to be there almost like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Then your neonic is actually a very, very good uh, treatment to use. Because neonics are very, very good uh, on piercing, sucking insects that feed on the seed and feed on the little plant. Okay. When you get into some of the larger wireworms, it probably doesn't work as long on wireworms. It will work early in the season. As the season goes on, not as much. But with wireworms, it's a case of you never know for sure if you're going to have them there or not. And so when you put a seed treatment out, One year, yeah, it may not do much of anything, and that's because the pest pressure just isn't there. Mm -hmm. But if the pest pressure is there and you don't have it, that's the year that you end up with uh, uh, major crop losses. And then you start going, well, I wonder if I ought to have it out there. And the one part that I can't answer on this is because I don't have the crystal ball to tell you what's in the field ahead of time in most cases. Because a lot of times these pests that come in, it's by luck of chance. Uh, a lot of them are uh, over winter elsewhere, and then they fly in. And if they happen to land in your field and your crop is small, you'd be glad you had uh, some protection on it. If they land into a field and your crop is larger, well, the protection's probably not as much at that point, but they're also not going to do as much damage at that point. But if they happen to drop on your crop and you have no protection, then they're going to do a lot of damage. It's kind of a uh, spin the roulette wheel type of thing. How risk averse are you? Is what you need to do need to decide. Uh, it's interesting. I guess I didn't realize that there was that much variability from year to year. When I did my master's and my PhD projects, we would joke back and forth. The worst thing that we could do is do an experiment in the field and then try to repeat it the next year because everything changes the second year. The third year, it's different again. One of the big things that you can say on that is that all you, you got to do is look at the weather. This past growing season across the country is probably the weirdest one I can remember, except that the year before I was saying it was probably the weirdest one that I could remember, but it was different. And and every year you go back, there's really no such thing as an average growing year. There's just uh, somewhere between the extremes that we see every year. Now, in terms of which is more likely to create a, a bad problem for your crops. Uh, is there any real difference between the, the bugs that overwinter in your fields versus the ones that fly in? Well, yeah, uh, there's a huge difference there. The ones that overwinter in your field, you can estimate, you can sample for and estimate what the uh, pressure you're likely to see is going to be. Because what you have in the fall is what you're going to have in the spring. It's actually going to be a little less than that because you always have winter mortality. Oh, for one of the things that you got to take into effect on all these uh, during the winter 
is uh, what's your snow cover and how cold did it get? If you stayed covered in snow and it got to 40 below zero, you didn't impact the insects in the soil very much. However, if you were bare ground and it got to 40 below, you probably significantly impacted the insects in the soil. And that's because snow will insulate the soil. With the uh, the insects that come in from outside, there it's uh, spin the wheel. And uh, if the weather, the date, the insects preparation down in the, the south, uh, where they usually end up flying through or flying from, but not always, if all those coincide just perfect, you can get a massive problem. Uh, an example here, uh, last several years, down where I, I own some property in southern Arkansas, and they've had a terrible problem with uh, fall armyworm coming into the fields there and just eating all the grass. And I mean, it's landing on the grass and eating everything. When I lived down there, we almost never saw it. And it's just the last several years, the conditions have been absolutely perfect for it to pop up there and land. It's always been a possibility, but the last few years, and I couldn't tell you what the condition was that made it possible, but it's they've been right. Okay. And uh, and somewhere in the country, I, I can remember living in uh, northeast Texas one year, grasshoppers like crazy. They were so bad, they were eating actually the uh, the trim, the rubber off the windshields on cars. Oh. <laughs> they they were so hungry. There were so many of them. They, they were a massive problem. You know, sometimes uh, things just, sometimes things just happen and we just don't really know exactly why other than uh, if you look back at it after the fact, you can sometimes figure out, oh, well, the weather was uh, just right. Uh, um, oh, the, we had a storm that came in and blew them out of, uh, South Texas up into North Texas mm-hmm. uh, or or uh, Central Mexico into North Texas and so on. Or uh, another example I can think of is, uh, and this was a, uh, a detrimental in this case, the year I went down to the Monarch Butterfly Reserve in uh, uh, Mariposa, Mexico, the population was way down that year, but it was because they had a storm come through, blew them out of the trees and killed 90% of the monarch butterflies. This was in 2001, 2002. It had nothing to do with anything that anybody else did anywhere else. It had everything to do with just a freak storm. You never know for, for sure what Mother Nature is going to do. That's the thing us as farmers have to take into account is Mother Nature is going to throw you a curveball every year. You just don't know which direction it's going to curve. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the No-Till Authorities featured in the series, then join us in St. Louis from January 7th through the 10th for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. We've lined up more than 30 top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most out of your no-till farming system. Share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during 13 thought-provoking general sessions, 23 expert-led no-till classrooms, 76 farmer-to-farmer roundtable discussions, and two exclusive workshops on soil biology and raising hemp as a specialty crop. The National No-Tillage Conference is 100% money-back guaranteed to bring all of the resources, information, and networking opportunities you need to help your no-till operation reach new heights in 2020. Listeners of this podcast can receive a $20 registration discount by visiting notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC and entering code PODCAST20 at checkout.
I assume that there's some changes based on the change in climate that we've been experiencing in terms of insect movement. It's been very interesting. It's like when you look at, like, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking right off the top of my head here, the relative maturity of corn and soybeans, we're able to grow longer season corn and soybeans further north than what we have in the past. And this has been a steady trend for the past several decades, apparently. Mm. Now, that can change. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into the argument on climate change. Is it real or not? It, uh, we, do, we know it's, it's getting warmer. That's that's sure. the thing that we know for a fact. And uh, if it affects the crop, it for sure has an effect on the insects. And that's going to be, again, it's going to depend on the insect. There are some, uh, you take soybean aphid, for example. If it gets up into the hundreds, it's actually lethal to the insect. If it stays in the 90s and below, it's actually very beneficial to the insect. Years that you have a very hot summer, you don't usually see soybean aphid problems. The years that are really mild, that's the years that a lot of times you do. That's not a 100% guarantee there either. you got to have the insects ready to multiply and fill the fields up. There was one year I remember that, uh, very mild year, I was working in southern uh, Illinois at the time, and we had a very large population of soybean aphids that year. And it's all because it was a very cool year. We didn't get over 100 all season. So going back to the neonics for a minute, and also pyrethroids. Of course, we've heard a lot about them being potentially harmful to honeybees and other pollinators. What are your thoughts on that? I can kill a honeybee with any insecticide out there, okay? Uh, and the basic premise of it all is, is that if I use it incorrectly, I can cause damage. It's that simple. Okay. So when I, I'm going to preach here, this is something I truly believe, and I, and I practice this religiously, Read the label and follow the label on any product that you use because the companies spend many millions of dollars testing, figuring out exactly how these products should be used so that they cause the least amount of impact on other organisms and provide the benefit that the farmer that's applying them wants to get. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you spray an organophosphate, uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to stay generic here, or even a pyrethroid, and the wind's blowing right towards an apiary, you're probably going to impact some bees. But now there's some basic things that you can do here, too, though, to keep it down. Uh, pyrethroids are actually very good because, uh, in most cases, residual is not very long. So you can spray and get the beneficial effect of the insects in the field and have minimal impact on honeybees as long as you follow the rules. And, and some of the things you need to know is that most of your pollinators, uh, they're homebodies at night. So during the day, they're out working. Once it gets dark, they don't like to go outside. So knowing that, as a farmer, I'm going to try to spray these type of insecticides as close to dawn or dusk as I can because the honeybees that are out working, they're back at home. Mm-hmm. And same way with the wasps and uh, all the other wild bees and insects that they're out collecting pollen in your field. So gotcha. it's it's one of those things that you can do, uh, a very simple thing, that you can still get the benefit out of the insecticide and impact the other insects uh, to the least amount. And so do insecticide treatments have a long-term effect on soil health that no-tillers should be mindful of? Oh, some of the things that you got to think about is is uh, 
an insecticide probably does not directly affect soil health per se. Now, some may say that it does and, and, and back and forth, and, and we could argue a lot of different possibilities. But overall, uh, most of the insecticides we use now, uh, most of the things that we used to use are no longer in the market. Some of the really bad organophosphates like the, uh, the DDTs, but uh, most of them are off the market. We can't use them. Um, and those, some of those would get in the soil and stay there for years and years. Oh. Most of the insecticides that we use now, uh, they have a very, a relatively short half-life out in the uh, environment. Um, now that said, you you got you got to look at every one individually. There's some that are have more impact than others, and uh, the only way you can tell that is you read the label. And so when you look at the label, uh, you can look at the signal word on it. If it says danger, that's something you got to be a little more careful with. Uh, if it's something that just says uh, warning or even caution, well, at that both the uh, the levels of danger go down with each of those words. So again, read the label. If 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 there's a potential environmental impact, it's on the label. If you follow that, you can minimize the the effects on anything else. So the people who basically want to ban an entire class of insecticides, you don't think that's necessary? I I really don't. There are some when we look at, at an organophosphate, which is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. There's uh, some on the market uh, that uh, are very very useful still and uh, have actually fairly low mammalian toxicity. That said, you don't want to just go bathe in one. I wouldn't. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I, there used to be the argument, well, you, if you can't drink it, you shouldn't use it. Well, that's not true either. It, it's a case of I would never drink any of them. It's mm. it's not what they were made for. Mm-hmm. They were made to kill insects. And if you do that and you follow the rules, you can get a product that provides a benefit with the least amount of risk to anything else. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the whole thing to, to remember. So what about pheromones for crop protection. I've been hearing about them in some of the high-value crops, but uh, what about using pheromones in uh, row crops? Well, uh, I, I don't know of any that are being used right off the top of my head in row crops. Uh, in, in the higher-value crops, such as apples, there's uh, uh, your tolerance for pest uh, damage is much lower and um, you're also, you have to look at the complex of insects. There are some insects that pheromones makes no difference. But then when you get to like, uh, let's say apple maggot, for example, uh, you can use some pheromones as mating disruptors. And that uh, causes them to uh, not be able to successfully mate and produce the eggs and the larvae that are going to damage your crop. Because in most cases, it's the larvae of the insect that's causing the damage. It's not the adult. Most cases, there are exceptions to that. But uh, when you're talking about lepidopteran insects, uh, that's your butterflies and moths, often pheromones are extremely important to those class of insects. When you're talking about uh, some of your flies, eh, it's not so important. A lot of your aphids, it's important on a very short, very close basis, Mm -hmm. but it's not important on a long-term, you know, long-distance basis. As I told you earlier that I grow timber, and so there's a, a, a whole complex of beetles that will kill pine trees, for example. There is a, a pheromone that they emit when they land on a tree, 
and it attracts all the other beetles to that tree, and so they attack it in mass. And uh, there's been a lot of work over the years to look at a pheromone to disrupt that. I am not up on the success of that at the moment, but it's something that uh, uh, has been looked at there. And like I say, most of the success I've seen so far has been with uh, uh, butterflies and moths. Um, And what about biologicals? Well, um, the companies are all looking at this. I am not at liberty to say, you know, what is uh, coming out or isn't coming out or anything like that. I just sure. can say that we're looking at them. Okay. Um, it's it's. Uh, I read a thing the other day on honeybees that uh, you could take rhubarb leaves, for example, and put in the top of the hive to control varroa mites. Oh. And uh, I'm reading up on it, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know. And so I go look up some uh, scientific articles on it, and it's like, well... This, this is maybe something that works. I'm not. I'm not advocating it, but it's maybe it's something that works because the leaves are high in oxalic acid, and oxalic acid is very efficacious at controlling varroa mites. It's possible. I did not find any paper that had looked at rhubarb leaves in a scientific setting to say that it worked or it didn't work. I'm mm-hmm. just saying it's possible. So, sure. At the same time. Um, Nothing beats uh, 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 personal experience on it. If you've been working with something and it's worked for you in the field and it's uh, a biological that you're able to uh, encourage on your own crop, sure, why not? However, uh, you know, the uh, the big ag companies are also looking at these and there's a lot of startups that are looking at them and some work, some don't. At this point, it's still kind of a wild west on that as to what does and what doesn't. Uh, the best thing is is to be able to, uh, you know, once the product comes out, give it a year or two on the market, and if it works, it'll still be there. If it doesn't work, it'll probably go away. <laughs> <laughs> sure, right. Um, and so what about traits? I mean, that's something that you have a lot of experience with. Is there anything you can talk about in terms of what's coming up down the road? Well, uh, I can tell you that uh, traits have been uh, the cornerstone, so to speak, of the the more recent revolutions in uh, row crop farming, especially when uh, we start looking at, well, the, probably one of the earliest ones was uh, for um, uh, corn borer control. And it has been uh, phenomenally successful. And there's this thing called uh, a herd immunity for animals when it comes to immunizations. And we've actually seen herd immunity take place in row crops as well. So uh, in the case of uh, corn borer, it has been adopted for so many acres across the uh, the United States that a lot of the non-trait corn growers have actually seen benefits from it because this pest population just reduced down so much. It's an interesting thing uh, on how that works. Now, traits are not bulletproof, though. Uh, you can use one up and uh, and destroy it as, and make it where it doesn't work as well anymore. And, and this is something that you have to remember that all throughout history, life, plant comes up with a better way. Insect mm-hmm. feed, it figures out how to overcome that. Plant comes up with a better way. Insect figures out how to overcome that because it's all about survival. And so uh, when we start working with traits, it really becomes important to plant the refuge, to encourage the conservation of that trait because it takes years to put a new trait into a plant. So I'll go with uh, our corn rootworm flagship product right now, our uh, SmartStacks corn. There's 
eight different traits in there for different insects, also herbicide management on the plant. That's taken years to put together. You know, we'd like to keep it around. So it's one of those things that uh, uh, you don't just plant it over and over again. You, you probably ought to take a year off every so often so that it gives the field a chance to rest is kind of the way I would say it. The pressure is taken off for that season, and then the, the next year you don't see quite as big of a pest problem on that field that you don't have. I, it'd take me a long time to explain the uh, the whole idea of how resistance development occurs. Let's just say that the more pressure we put on it, the more likely you are to get the resistance to develop. Oh, okay. So we want to remove that pressure ever so often so that we don't get the resistance to develop as easily. Switch it up. Use something different for a while. Mix it up. Mix it yep. up. Keep them off balance. Yeah. Uh, if if it, one thing works, awesome. Next year, do something else. (laughs) (laughs) And then come back to that first one the following year. On some crops, that's not possible. But there's a lot of things that if you can mix it up, that's the best way to do it. So you did your research on aphids. There can be a lot of aphid problems in crops, right? Aphids, it's going to depend on the crop. So uh, if you're growing wheat, uh, barley yellow dwarf virus is a big uh, uh, concern. And uh, how does that relate to an aphid? Well, an aphid is often going to be a vector of the virus that causes that. So uh, uh, it has to be infected by the aphid. If you don't have the aphids, you're not likely to get the barley yellow dwarf, that sort. And and again, you're going to have to look at every individual crop uh, as to what the thresholds are. Soybean aphid, for example, speed scouting method, we try to estimate do we have 250 aphids per plant or less or more. By using that uh, process, you can decide real quick if you've got a damaging population or if it's just, well, they're there and uh, it costs too much to treat for them. Those type of things. If you're into vegetable production, sometimes aphids are really, really bad. And other times it's just, yeah, they're there. And then you have the ant complex with it that certain ants will actually tend the aphids and they will bring them and uh, protect them on the plant, and that makes it uh, their uh, control even more difficult. Do you have any um, suggestions for maximizing the benefits of cover crops while reducing the risk of pest problems? Well, uh, I, th- I said this before. Pay attention to the label on insecticides. Also, mix up your cover crops. I, I really I don't want to see the same cover crop in the same field year after year after year. I I am actually a very big proponent of no-till. It doesn't work in every situation, but it works in a lot of them. Um, I came out of a system uh, where we were no-till on one of the farms we worked in southern Illinois. It had been no-till since 1967, if I remember right. And uh, it was beautiful soil. It, It did wonderfully in that environment. They're in other environments where it's uh, more of a challenge. Uh, uh, residue management becomes a problem in some places. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's uh, it's maybe not the answer for everything, but it's the answer in a lot of places. Um, okay. And then the other one is uh, get with your extension guys. Get with your local people, the, the other no-tellers in your area. Find out what they're doing because they uh, they they know it better than I do. Uh because every situation's a little bit different. Every field's a little bit different. And what works one place may not work elsewhere. So you got to lean heavily upon that local research and local issues to make uh, quality decisions. Well, 
Very interesting. This has been quite fascinating. Thanks so much for your time and all of your, uh, your insights. All right. Thank you, Julia. All right. Take care, Doug. Thanks to Doug Jones for all that background on bugs. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 20th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC to register. And don't forget to enter that code PODCAST20 at checkout to receive a discount. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up with the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. 